Welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all to here today on this wonderful and happy occasion. We are grateful to have Bobby Spellman here to discuss her book, The Psychological Foundations of Evidence Law, with panelists from both our own law school and others. And Professor Shower will uh, introduce them momentarily. Anne Murphy of Gonzaga University, uh, Ed Chang of Vanderbilt, as well as our own uh, Kim Ferzan and Greg Mitchell, with Fred Shower moderating. So. Bobby received her bachelor's degree from Wesleyan University and a JD from NYU. She spent a few years practicing tax law at Chadburn and Park in New York City and working as a writer and editor at the Matthew Bender Company. She then went on to get her PhD in psychology at UCLA and arrived in University of Virginia's psychology department in 1997. She was tenured there and became a full professor before she moved over to the law school and became a tenured full professor here uh, in 2008. Bobby teaches evidence, behavioral decision-making and the law, empirical methods in the law, and seminars and advanced courses in evidence and psychology and law. She is expert in the law and, reason and, and, the, law and the psychology of analogical reasoning, causation, legal reasoning, and various other topics at the intersection of law and psychology. And she just finished a five-year stint as editor-in-chief of Perspectives on Psychological Science, which is one of the top general psychology journals in the country. In other words, Bobby is at the top of her game. And I am uh, excited for this opportunity to celebrate her and her accomplishments and also to take this opportunity to think not only about the specific achievement of Bobby's book, uh, which occasions this event, but also about the intellectual community in which it has flourished and she has flourished. We are fortunate to have Bobby here as a key colleague in two areas of strength at the law school, two areas that she has further strengthened uh, by her presence here. The first is that of law and psychology. The law school, as you know, prizes both doctrinal scholarship, teaching, uh, and practice experience, as well as many interdisciplinary perspectives. And one of the interdisciplinary perspectives that is particularly robust here at the University of Virginia is that of law and psychology. Together with Bobby, Richard Bonney, John Monahan, Greg Mitchell, who's on our panel, and others, our faculty research into psychology ranges from evidence to criminology to mental health services to legal judgment and decision making to the psychology of justice. Using psychology to think about the law offers us an invaluable perspective that broadens your engagement of the law and our engagement of the law and that helps the law school engage with the world in sustained ways through scholarship, especially accessible scholarship like Bobby's, and policy making. And everyone in our intellectual community is enriched by this perspective. The second area of strength in which Bobby is a critical colleague is that of evidence law. So just as she brings her psychological expertise to bear, colleagues like Greg Mitchell, Kim Ferzan on our panel, Michael Collins, Brandon Garrett, Ken Sinclair, Charles Barzin, Daryl Brown, and Fred Schauer and others take philosophical, historical, doctrinal, theoretical, and institutional perspectives on evidence law that provide insights for us all. These intellectual communities, and indeed our overall intellectual community, is all the richer for Bobby's presence. That brings me to the new book, At the Intersection of Law, Psychology, and Evidence, written with co-author Michael Sachs, who is at Arizona State, he himself is a prominent expert on scientific evidence, but he has no law degree or practice. So this is a wonderful collaboration across disciplines uh, with many synergies. 
Bobby's vantage point of bringing psychology to bear in evidence is a very productive one. Evidence is a pervasively psychological subject. The rules about, for example, character, habit, relevance, expert testimony, they're all based on psychological assumptions, but many of these assumptions are based on folk, folk wisdom, urban legends, and the like, rather than on serious psychological research. And in fact, many of those assumptions are wrong, as such kinds of assumptions often are. This is the first book to examine and explain the psychological bases of these various assumptions, as well as the psychological basis and implications for evidence law more generally. I'm going to close with uh, uh, just a little snippet from a forthcoming review in the Michigan Law School about the book. Maybe you don't even know about it yet. Uh, here's the quote. Professors Michael Sachs and Barbara Spellman have produced a gem of a book, a concise, cogent, and thoughtful introduction to the major rules of evidence, the psychological foundations of evidence law, glitters in the light of ideas from social and cognitive psychology. It is an eminently accessible book that evidence professors should assign to their students, that psychologists seeking uh, research questions about evidence law should consult, that litigators seeking to sharpen their persuasive powers should peruse, and that judges engage in the metacognitive task of applying rules for screening improperly prejudicial evidence from jurors should examine." End quote. In other words, this is not your everyday book. It is both learned and readable, and it speaks to so many different people with so many different kinds of interest. That was high praise, and it is well-deserved. Please join me in echoing that praise and anticipating the lively discussion that I know is about to follow. Thank you very much, Risa. Um, my job uh, here is to introduce the speakers uh, thereafter to both keep time and keep quiet. Uh, we will see how well I can do about that. <laughs> With that, our four speakers uh, will each speak for about eight to ten minutes about the book, then Bobby will respond. I should mention um, that I am here as someone who teaches evidence and who write, uh, teaches evidence here, who occasionally writes about evidence. The mere fact that our honoree is my wife is an entire coincidence. Uh, I like to think I would have been asked to do this anyway, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, so um, the, um, in the order in which they will speak, uh, we will start with Ann Murphy, professor of law at Gonzaga University. Um, has a degree of trial experience that makes most of the rest of us who are academics pale by comparison. 15 years as a trial lawyer with the Internal Revenue Service, including more than 50 cases tried before the tax court. Um, she, in addition to teaching at Gonzaga, has taught and lectured around the world very significantly on some number of occasions in China and other places in the Far East. She's written widely about evidence as well as about tax, legal ethics, and some number of other things. She is most, the most recent chair of the section on evidence of the Association of American Law Schools uh, and the organizer of perhaps the most widely consulted evidence blogs and evidence websites. She will be followed by Edward Cheng, professor of law at the Vanderbilt Law School, uh, a genuine expert on scientific and expert evidence 
with a particular focus on statistics and statistical evidence. He's the author of many articles on evidence, many articles on statistics, and law and statistics, and law and statistical evidence. He is the uh, co-author of West Publishing's five-volume standard treatise, uh, Modern Scientific Evidence, uh, and is the organizer, creator, promoter, and chief uh, star um, of the widely distributed podcast about evidence, wonderfully entitled Excited Utterances. <laughs> um, he will be um, followed. Um, by my colleague um, Kim Frizan. Kim is the Harrison Robertson Professor of Law and the Cadell and Chapman Professor of Law here. Uh, she teaches and writes about evidence, but in addition is perhaps one of the world's foremost theorists of criminal law theory, the nature of criminal law, uh, the bases for criminal law, and so on. Uh, she is the editor-in-chief of Law and Philosophy, and Philosophy informs that, uh, her evidence work, uh, and her criminal law work. Uh, she, uh, before becoming an academic, was a trial attorney with the United States Department of Justice, uh, extensive trial experience, primarily prosecuting uh, instances of official misconduct. And Greg Mitchell um, is the Joseph Weintraub um, and Bank of America Distinguished Professor of Law, as well as the Thomas Bergen uh, Teaching Professor of Law. Um, Greg has been on the faculty uh, for here for 12 years. He has extensive, before becoming an academic, extensive civil litigation experience, primarily in Nashville. In addition to his law degree from Berkeley, he also has a PhD in psychology from Berkeley. Uh, much of his academic work of uh, enormous prominence and enormous influence is on empirical approaches, not only to evidence law, but evidence law, uh, but law in general. Uh, much of his work is about the use and abuse of empirical evidence in courts and in policy making. Um, he writes uh, about psychology and law more generally, teaches about psychology and law, as well as evidence and civil procedure here. Uh, and we will start with Ann Murphy. We are, we'll all speak from here uh, in order to uh, save everyone the, uh, the annoyance of having to watch all of us get up and down and up and down and everything else. So, Anne, you're on. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me here. This is just such a treat, and um, I want to I wanna thank you so much. And this book is such a treat. It's, it's amazing. Um, I, I wish you would have left out the IRS part. Um, <laughs> it's always such a giveaway. Um, but um, what I really liked about this book, I think the highest praise you could give any book is it makes you think. And it made me think a lot. Um, which is why I have notes throughout, constant, <laughs> important. This is, this is, wow, look at, you know, so... It's wonderful because the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking, and I don't have um, a psychology background. I took psychology in high school and in college, which I'm sure a lot of you have. And so it was, it was so eye-opening to me. I had, I had uh, thought about some of the rules um, and why we keep information from a jury uh, for quite some time, but I didn't know really what the studies had shown, and they're quite remarkable. 
in in differing between what we do and and uh, what really is happening on the ground. Um, it's interesting. Juries are so such an odd thing, and I think a lot of people believe that that is the status quo, and it's actually very odd to have jury trials. And um, we're one of the very few countries that do, and we're the only country that has it to the extent we have it. And so. The thought process and the um, studies that have been done on juries versus judges is so interesting to me. And what I particularly liked about her book was um, she calls it the reigning in of lawyers. And I just loved that. Um, and so these rules are not necessarily to keep information from the jury but sometimes to rein in the lawyers. And so I consider myself a pretty nice person in general. You get me in the courtroom and I don't know, I become a different person. It's, it's a little embarrassing, you know. And I tell my students sometimes, I don't know what happened to me. It's, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But you get so consumed by your cases. And so I really liked that uh, part of the book where she talks about the fact that we do have to rein in lawyers because it is an advocacy system. And so and that's unusual as well. So our system is the advocates, the lawyers are presenting the cases rather than the judge or, um, or other individuals. So um, what other things I liked quite a bit about it and found just fascinating are the, um, well, first of all, that it truly is an interdisciplinary book. I don't see very many of those. And so it, it's such a credit to you because you, you are, equally skilled in both of these areas, which I don't think very many people, I don't know of anyone who could have written this book. And that's what makes it so wonderful. A lot of times you'll get an interdisciplinary book where the strength is on one part and, and a little bit weaker on the other. And this is just strong on both. And it makes it such a joy to read. And I was thinking this is for law students and for students of psychology, which is tremendous. Um, I also found it really fascinating, the judge and the jury. And so you wonder very often, um, as a lawyer, um, should I go with a bench trial? Should I go with a jury trial? And I tell students, um, I was in the tax court, so it's all bench trials. And I kind of missed that I never had jury trial experiences. I had lots of judges, but um, you, you know, my, my theory was if you've got a good case on the law, go with the judge. If you have something very sympathetic, go with the jury. But what's interesting is the studies that she talks about in the book are there's really not a substantial difference in the effect. And so 78% of the cases, you get the same result, whether it's a jury or a judge. And so just so happens, I was in um, DC this past weekend and um, went out for dinner and a great walk on the towpath in DC with um, a judge that I practiced before quite a bit. And so I had my largest case in front of him and my smallest case in front of him. And so I, we became friends after I became an academic, which I'm very, very thrilled about. So we were talking about the book and I had told him, you know, while, why I was in town. And um, so I said, you know, a lot of times judges really can't, and, and I was really reluctant to say it, and he goes, what? And I said, 
You know, her studies show that, and the studies that she cited to show that judges are just as, have just as difficult a time in deciding if somebody is being truthful as juries do. And he goes, why are you looking at me like that? And I, I said, I'm not looking at you like anything. And he said, I know that. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah. He said, most of my colleagues don't, but I actually... I'm not very good at it. And I was so struck because you would think he's been a judge, he's been a chief trial judge for 25 years. So you would think he's had all these people to judge and say whether they're being truthful or not. And he said, it's so difficult. It's much more difficult than you would ever think. And so I thought, you know, things, it was so thought provoking to me to see some of the myths that I had believed all my life um, were not you know, what I thought they were. And so I thought that was the big strength of the book. I would say um, from here, I think what was really interesting to me is where do we go from here? And so um, one of the things that is striking to me is a few years ago, the National Academies of Science came out with a report on forensics. And they actually tested all these forensics. We've been doing for years, fingerprints, tire marks, you know, boot marks, uh, shoe print, you name it, blood spatter. It's all completely junk. And everybody, <laughs> seriously, everybody was kind of like, what? Are you kidding? What are we going to do now? Oh my gosh. And essentially they said DNA is really the only reliable science in this area. So I predicted, oh, we're going to have such a sea change in trials and oh my gosh, they're not going to let this in. Nothing has changed. And I think it's because what else are we going to do? Um, the president, President Obama, our former president, uh, put together a panel and he included judges, which I thought was really smart. Because the National Academies of Science, they were scientists. And so I think judges were kind of like, they were shocked too. But it was kind of, well, what are we going to do about this? Because we have to allow fingerprint evidence in. What are we going to do? What about eyewitnesses? Oh, those are terrible, too. You know, oh, dear, what are we going to do? And so I think it was really smart of the former president to put judges on that panel as well to indicate, hopefully, have some, you know, ideas of where do we go now? You know, where do we go from here? Because we are finding a lot of what we thought is not true. And that's the bottom line and, and a wonderful part of her book. So I was supposed to say something that I didn't like um, or <laughs> not that I didn't like. Fred making you do that. <laughs> he, he told me, he said, Ann, could you please? Um, no. um, you know, I would say that it, I would have loved it as two books. But, it's, but what I also like, that's, that's what's horrible, is I like it as one book because it's got everything. But it's so, I was telling my, my former judge, I said, it's so dense. And I said, not dense in the, you know, but dense in that I found so much in here. And it was, it was a lot to swallow. And so I, but I think it's better as one book. I just need to spend um, lots and lots of time on it. Um, and then privileges, I don't know. That's my favorite area, and so I, I kind of have this thing about privileges. Um, and there's just a short portion. I could see a whole book on just privileges. So I really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me today to be part of this book celebration. It's been great to connect with some old friends and to make some new connections. So uh, 
Thanks to all of you. I've been waiting for a book like this for a long time. Early in my teaching career, I actually remember a lunch that I had with students where we all agreed that someone ought to write a book linking the psychological literature with the evidentiary rules. Now, I say someone because it sure as heck wasn't going to be me. <laughs> For one thing, as much as I love psychological um, scholarship, I'm not a psychologist. And the other thing is that it was clear that it was going to be an enormous amount of work. And now my wish has been granted. So here we have a beautiful, comprehensive work that details the psychological literature related to evidence. And so I'm forever grateful to you, Bobby, and to Michael Sachs for doing a magnificent job. I've already begun using the book in evidence class. I used it last week to justify the character rules under Rule 404 and the habit rule under Rule 406 and the often tricky line separating the two, which you can now use the psychological literature to justify. So the book is hardly a year old, and it's already making a difference in the way that evidence law is taught and understood. Beyond beca uh, being an incredible reference, I think the book frames the psychological literature in a number of interesting ways, and I'm going to give you two examples. The first is that it considers psychology within the context of the broader proof process, specifically the story model. And for those of you who are less familiar with this, let me uh, give you a brief introduction. So there are two warring conceptions of the proof process. The first you might call atomistic or cumulative. Proof here is like a football game where the parties push the evidence up and down the field. And at the end of trial, if the plaintiff crosses midfield or the prosecution gets close to the end zone, then they win. The alternative view of proof is comparative and holistic. Here, this is the story model. Here, the trial is about competing stories between the two sides. And the jury compares the stories and simply selects the one that it thinks makes the most sense of the world. Now, scholars conventionally assess the evidentiary rules, I think, through this atomistic cumulative model, not the story model. We ask whether or not the rules do their job with respect to an isolated piece of evidence. And at the risk of belaboring this football analogy, you can kind of think of the rules as being a bit like a holding penalty. It, it where a piece of evidence unfairly yields a 15-yard gain rather than a play for no gain, then you, know, you blow the whistle. Bobby's book, by contrast, doesn't do that. It suggests that we should look at the evidentiary rules not in isolation, but in the service of the broader project, the construction of these stories or narratives. And when you view things in this way, unfair prejudice or unfairness is deeper and more insidious because the jury constructs an unfair narrative that becomes very difficult to repair or unseat. And I think this shift in perspective is a rather profound one, even though it's rather subtle. The second move Anne mentioned earlier, which is the move 
from considering the evidentiary rules as being about lawyers rather than about jurors. The traditional account is that the evidentiary rules arose because of concerns about a lay or ignorant jury. But they use some recent historical scholarship to suggest that the rules are really about a check on attorney zeal. And this move is also an important shift. So now the bad actor is the overzealous attorney or the adversary process itself rather than the naive or ignorant juror. If we take all of these contributions I just mentioned together, we have one other power to a book like this, which is to spark new ideas in its readers. And in the remainder of my time, I want to explore one of these questions that the book raised in me. So evidence law is about stories, and it's also concerned about attorneys. So the question is, should the trial process help attorneys build stories? In other words, is narrative a good thing? And at times, the book suggests that the answer is yes. For example, in chapter one, it seems to lament the fact that the question and answer, the staccato method that we introduce evidence, is something that gets in the way of the development of narrative. But on the whole, I think it's fair to say that the book simply accepts the story model as a descriptive fact, and it doesn't really get into its desirability. And I want to push on this normative question. To me, there are several parts of the book that suggest that narrative is dangerous and that perhaps we should reconsider some of our evidentiary practices that promote narrative. So why is narrative dangerous? Well, for one thing, people like narrative. And they like narrative even though it may not be the most accurate method of decision making. Chapter seven talks about clinical opinions, which tell a story. And the chapter describes how clinical opinions are easier for a jury to incorporate than statistical information or statistical models, even though researchers have long shown that in a variety of contexts, uh, statistical models can be the more accurate way of making decisions. Juries are also biased in favor of familiar narratives. And chapter one raises the problem of rape myths. Jurors have preconceived scripts about how rape occurs or doesn't occur. And sophisticated attorneys can, again, exploit these archetypes and these preferences potentially at the cost of truth. And the final concern about narrative is something called belief perseverance, which the book talks about in chapter three. Once you have a causal story that is constructed in a juror's mind, that causal story becomes quite sticky. And in a famous experiment, which the book cites but doesn't discuss at length, the subjects were given a, a series of news reports related to a warehouse fire. And at some point during this stream, they receive a report that the fire originated from a storage room filled with paints and gas cylinders. Then later on the stream, they're told that that initial report was wrong, that in fact that room was empty and that was misinformation. When these subjects were later asked what caused the fire, they effectively couldn't help themselves. 
they would actually offer explanations involving paints and gas cylinders. And in fact, they behave no differently than a control group that never received the correction at all, that had just received the gas and paint cylinder material and not the fact that that had been wrong. Over a series of experiments, these researchers tried to unseat this information with uh, about half a dozen different variations and almost always failed. That people just seem to prefer a incorrect story, although complete one, versus an incomplete story. The stickiness of narrative is also made all the worse by a variety of other psychological phenomena. Chapter four of the book notes that misinformation is hard to correct because people misattribute information. So we hear information incorporated into our stories and then we forget where we got the information in the first place. So when the source gets discredited later by cross-examination or by impeachment, we can't go back like a videotape and selectively delete that information. We're also prone to confirmation bias. So when we have a desired result or a story in mind, we tend to interpret evidence in favor of that. And we tend to discredit evidence that's inconsistent with that story. So now, while we, we're not necessarily sure that narrative is dangerous, these troubling issues associated with narrative at least give me some pause. And taking a page from Bobby's book, I want to ask what implications they might have for evidence law. So the first is um, maybe we should reinvigorate a time-honored jury instruction, pretrial jury instruction, that states the following. Do not form any opinion until all the evidence is in. Keep an open mind until you start your deliberations at the end of the case. Now, this instruction has long mystified me. Now, why, as a juror, would I want to reserve judgment? I, I should update my beliefs progressively throughout the trial. Well, apparently, this may be another instance in which trial practice and the evidentiary rules may have actually gotten something right. That to guard against belief perseverance, you should avoid forming opinions until the very end. Now, does this instruction actually work? Who knows? but at least it's fodder for further research. Second, we should reconsider opening arguments. If narrative is the enemy, why do we allow attorneys to implant narratives in the jury's mind from the very beginning? Instead, maybe what we can do is have the judge provide some basic context and go straight to the witnesses. On the other hand, Maybe the current practice of offering conflicting narratives between plaintiff and defense is more effective at preventing the seeding of the narrative to begin with. Again, space for further research. And finally, it seems to me that we should think about abandoning the practice of allowing each side the ability to present its entire case, because that does nothing but uh, build the narrative in the first place. If we alternated the calling of witnesses, prosecution, then defense, then prosecution, maybe we can disrupt the narrative formation until much later in the trial. So those are my, my thoughts. You have a book that changes the way that evidence is taught. You have a book that reshapes the way we think about evidence. And finally, that sparks new ideas for scholarship and reform. And so this is a, 
a trifecta of legal scholarship. <laughs> and for that reason, I suspect that Bobby and Michael's book will be a seminal work for a long time to come. So congratulations on a masterpiece. There is much to celebrate in Michael Sachs and Bobby Spellman's The Psychological Foundations of Evidence Law. It shows the strong benefits of interdisciplinarity. Evidence rules are premised on psychological assumptions. What can be better than to look at the psychological assumptions and see if our armchair empirics are accurate? To think about how judges and juries make decisions, about how judges predict juries will make decisions, and even about how society reacts in the face of legal rules are important empirical questions that this book sheds light on. From these junctures, we can think about whether we should keep complex hearsay rules if jurors are actually quite good at discounting hearsay, or whether we need to exclude subsequent remedial measures to encourage repairs. And yet, having ex examined not just judges and juries, but also society at large, in the author's quest to scrutinize our evidentiary rules, I can't help but think that one set of lawyers winds up largely ignored. Lawyers. In that sense, I, I suppose I'm disagreeing with my pa fellow panelists. Uh, it is certainly true that the rules of evidence constrain the sorts of arguments that lawyers make, and thus through this prism, we examine the effects of the rules of evidence on lawyers. But I think that if we're asking whether the rules of evidence get us more just verdicts, we might ask some nuanced questions about the impact of these rules on the way that we lawyer. Sachs and Spellman do tell us some things about lawyers, but they aren't the subject of the psychological study. Rather, the authors tell us lawyers are the disease to which the <laughs> rules of evidence are the cure. Specifically, so here's a quote, because lawyers in an adversarial system are highly motivated to try to find evidence that supports their client's position, to think about how best to present that evidence, and to argue as persuasively as possible in support of the desired evidence and the desired conclusions. Limits had to be placed on what those lawyers would be permitted to do. The rules came into being to rein in the inevitable excesses of lawyers in an adversarial system. Indeed, they later say, Though litigators are rightly thought of as dedicated professional persuaders, often overlooked is how effectively the rules of evidence and procedure limit the lawyer's options in trials. Lawyers are forced to employ the least powerful and most informative means of persuasion. After discussing the weapons of influence that have been removed from the lawyer's arsenal, Sachs and Spellman conclude, what then can a lawyer do to persuade the jury? The answer is that the lawyer can present evidence, or attack evidence, or present counter evidence, and can do so using more or less effective presentation methods. But the focus is on factual information, not on deploying social influences that are not relevant to the truth of disputed issues. The contest for the hearts and minds of the jury is fought on a more constrained battlefield, where relevant evidence has been made paramount. Still, throughout the discussion, Sachs and Spellman are cognizant of the ways that lawyers are keen to use every weapon at their disposal. For instance, after concluding that juries believe witnesses who are confident, even though confidence does not positively correlate with accuracy, something every law professor knows from cold calls. <laughs> <laughs> Sachs and Spellman give an advocacy tip. 
the fact that jurors believe witnesses who are confident more than witnesses who are not suggests lawyers should tell their witnesses to be as confident as justifiably possible on the witness stand. So here's a starting premise. Lawyers are people, and they're also armchair psychologists. So Sachs and Spellman tell us that there are two sort of systems of reasoning, system one and system two. System one, as they say, responds to information quickly, unconsciously, and by using heuristics. System two is slower, conscious, and reflective. It doesn't necessarily mean system one always gets things wrong and system two is always better. But lawyers then are also processing along system one and system two. And they are also engaging in the kind of metacognition that Sachs and Spellman talk about when they're thinking about how juries and judges are going to process that information. So now let's think about what the rules of evidence do to lawyers. Facts don't come prepackaged with their roots to admissibility. And lawyers don't think about facts through system two first. Rather, lawyers, being human too, may often start with system one. Good fact, want in. Bad fact, <laughs> keep out. Indeed, I've never met a practicing lawyer who didn't approach a good fact with anything other than the question, how do I get this in? Getting this in, however, is not a recipe for sincerity. It is a recipe for a construction of a plausible argument. And often, the lawyer does not want the evidence in for the argument she makes, but for all the prejudicial implications it will have. Indeed, as Sachs and Spellman note, the overwhelming conclusion from the empirical research on the ability or willingness of jurors to follow instructions to use evidence for a limited purpose is like that for disregarding evidence. Instructions fail to accomplish their purpose and can even backfire. And note the authors, this is no surprise to judges and lawyers. Lawyers, quote, lawyers know they may benefit if they can cleverly get the jury to hear excludable material through this route. Yes, indeed, lawyers know this. Consider Old Chief versus United States. Among other crimes, Johnny Lynn Old Chief was charged with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. The defense wanted to stipulate, maybe inartfully, that the defendant had committed a felony. The government refused. Why? To be sure, Justice O'Connor's dissent talks about how jurors don't have to accept the stipulation and the government needs to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But I'll bet you dollars to donuts that's not why the AUSA refused to stipulate. If Old Chief's prior felony conviction had been for illegal fly fishing, the AUSA would have leapt at the chance. <laughs> The reason why the government did not want to stipulate was because Old Chief's prior conviction was for assault, causing serious bodily injury. Moreover, Old Chief was charged not just with being a felon in possession, he was also charged with assault with a dangerous weapon and using a firearm in connection with a crime of violence. You're the prosecutor. You're convinced Old Chief did it. He has a prior felony conviction for assault causing serious bodily injury. The rules of evidence tell you you can't argue once a violent offender, always a violent offender. So you need some other way. Usually that route is 404B. Not character, intent. Not character, modus operandi. Not character, plan, and so forth. But the prosecutor and old chief seem to have hit the jackpot. The prior conviction was itself an element of the crime. 
So he surrendered the free square of proving that element via the defendant's stipulation for all the prejudicial bang he could get for his probative buck. I think lawyers routinely do this. This is an empirical question, but I suspect lawyers start with a system one intuition that this piece of evidence is good for them. And I would argue often a very good faith belief in their cause. And then the game, the strategy, is to get the fact in front of the jury. Because once it's before the jury, the prejudice will spill over in the jury room. And as Sachs and Spellman tell us, juries are often unwilling and unable to use evidence for one purpose, but not another. You may use this evidence against Old Chief to determine whether he's guilty of the 922G felon charge, but not as evidence that he's a violent offender and likely acted in conformity with his character. <laughs> jurors don't get that. Saxon Spellman say the research unanimously finds jurors will reason along the forbidden path and that the lawyers find it's all but impossible for jurors to follow such an instruction. Who can blame them? It takes a long time for law students to see the two different, the division and the relevancy. But here then is the question that isn't being asked. If we have a system of complicated rules that rewards gamesmanship, what are the implications of those rules? We are encouraging and rewarding insincerity. Does this affect how lawyers see themselves? How lawyers see other parts of their job? How judges view lawyers? Of course, lawyers are trained to advocate for their clients, to find loopholes to rules, to be hired guns. But it strikes me that the thought, I want to get this in front of the jury for the very reasons I'm not permitted to get this in front of the jury, takes us to a new level. Indeed, although rejected in a footnote, the defense attorney in Old Chief accused the prosecutor of prosecutorial misconduct for refusing to accept an adequate stipulation. Ultimately, as we ask what the feedback effects of these rules are, what they encourage and discourage into the population, we cannot treat lawyers as one-dimensional actors whose behaviors are not likewise shaped by the rules of evidence. As I teach the class, I fluctuate between two stances. The first is just a sheer love and joy of the analytical game of it all. And the second is a little bit of a disgust about the ways I am teaching students to employ and deploy <laughs> the rules of evidence to advance their cause. You're simply a bad lawyer if you don't start with the view, I want this in, and then figure out how to make it so. But is this approach to the trial a corrupting influence? But before concluding that the rules of evidence simply corrupt our souls, let me turn to another empirical question. Do the rules of evidence make us better advocates? Here's another group of armchair empirical assumptions. Lawyers, like lay people, start with intuitions about some facts and how they relate to what they want to prove. And in a world without rigorous and complex rules of evidence, we might just present a lot of stuff to the jury. Sure, we'll tell a story. But there is something that is universally true in law school evidence classes, and I say this with love and respect to all my evidence students in the audience, <laughs> but when evidence students start out, they're invariably pretty darn awful at articulating the chain of inferences that gets them from some fact to the ultimate legal question. They have a mushy, amorphous sense that there's a connection there, but they struggle to figure out how to articulate it. But lawyers have to confront rigorous rules of evidence about what can come in, when, and how. And in so doing, they have to be precise about the chain of inferences. This will matter not just to convincing a judge to admit the evidence, but also to the kinds of arguments lawyers make in opening and closing. 
And so we are left with an empirical question. Do we get more accurate verdicts because lawyers are forced to reason logically so as to overcome the obstacle course that is the rules of evidence? In asking about the rules of evidence then, we must recognize that lawyers are malleable and our inquiry is recursive. The lawyers affect the rules which affect the lawyers, which affect the arguments, which affect the rules we ought to have. Lawyers are not just villains in the background, but the very human beings whose behavior we wish to influence. They then are an object of psychological study, not just for professional responsibility or for persuasion, but for the goals that evidence law purports to have for itself. Again, I think this book fully succeeds in its ambitions, and anyone asking whether we ought to reform our evidence rules would be well advised to stop armchair psychologizing and look at the empirical evidence. But we shouldn't forget to look at the very actors whose behavior the system aims to influence in the first place. Great. So, uh, shockingly, I also recommend this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> that wasn't a given. No, it's not a given, actually. Uh, I agree with Anne and Ed that I, did, I think the book does a really nice job of examining the intuitions that uh, lie beneath many of the rules of evidence and comparing those intuitions to the available psychological research. Uh, and it's for that purpose alone, I think, is a, is a very good resource and very useful. Um, Michael and Bobby emphasize that the rules of evidence really seek to do two things. Um, I think it really, you see it throughout the book. Um, number one, they talk about how the rules, and you've already heard this, uh, aim to constrain attorneys from presenting possibly misleading evidence, and two, uh, the rules aim to prevent the jurors from being misled. Uh, of those two goals, Bobby and Michael clearly spend most of their time focused on the juror distrust rationale, um, whether, that, whether that distrust of jurors' ability to handle the evidence is justified by the psychological evidence. So I guess I would agree, I'm not sure this is what Kim's, Kim was saying, but I think she was saying that the attorney distrust question that, that, that's introduced that Ed, Ed notes is introduced early in the book as this animating theme and they have a framework but then they really throughout the book don't go forward and apply that framework to the rules of evidence to ask whether the rules are really constraining the attorneys i think that's a big missed opportunity in the book but i'll recommend it nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's i think that's that's a, a really important you you have a nice framework but then you don't follow through on it uh, and i wanted more on that but there's a third source of distrust. So they, they, they talk about attorney distrust, they focus on juror distrust, but there's a third source of distrust that I think also motivates the rules, and that's a distrust of judicial discretion. And uh, I wanna try to explain in just a few minutes here, I know we're trying your patience, so I'll try to take just a few minutes to explain why, we, why I think we have to take into account distrust of judicial discretion to understand the structure of American evidence rules. I think you just can't really understand how they're framed without doing that, yet Bobby and Michael only have six references to the word discretion in the whole book. They don't talk about judicial discretion at all, really, and I think this is, a, this is crucial to understanding the rules that we have. So let me, let me try to explain why I think that is. So all fact-finding systems 
employ some rule of relevance to constrain what evidence might be considered uh, in a trial or other tribunal. Uh, typically, that relevance rule is quite broad. It will usually allow the parties to introduce any evidence that could logically help us decide whether a material fact is more or less likely to be true. It's, you know Rule 401, our, our logical relevance test. Extremely broad rule for what evidence might be relevant at trial. The general problem of evidence law is how to decide which of the many pieces of relevant evidence we should consider when making a decision about who did what to whom with what intent. Uh, it's just not cost effective or feasible to allow every possible piece of evidence at trial, and some of that evidence may, be, may have uh, improper or distracting effects. Right. So imagine if a traffic accident occurs outside a nunnery, do we really need 100 nuns to testify to what they saw? Yeah, probably one wife of God would be enough. Right? Um, maybe two, depending on your views of nuns, maybe two or three. Right? Um, now, courts around the world have taken two basic approaches to solving this too much evidence problem. Uh, in what are sometimes called free proof tribunals, judges make admissibility decisions on a case-by-case -case basis using a standard that looks a lot like American uh, Rule 403, under which judges have discretion to decide when probative value is outweighed by some competing concern like unfair prejudice or waste of time. So in these free proof systems, which are really not free proof, they do have even some categorical exclusionary rules, but the general uh, way in which evidence is policed is on a case-by-case -case basis uh, with judicial discretion uh, being trusted. American court systems, on the other hand, use detailed evidentiary rules that distinguish between admissible and inadmissible categories of relevant evidence. These rules reflect a fear of giving judges too much power to make admissibility decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, the important thing to recognize is that you can have uh, concerns about attorney misconduct and uh, concerns about jurors being misled uh, under either of these approaches, right? That's the, that's the concern under whether you're a free proof system or an American court system. We worry about attorney misconduct. We worry about jurors being misled. You don't have to use the American approach uh, to police the evidence. You can use a judicial discretion approach of the kind found in Rule 403. To explain the choice between this Rule 403 versus categorical rules approach, you have to take into account the system's views on judicial discretion. Many courts, as I say, are quite confident that judges can do a good job policing the evidence on a case-by-case -case basis. American courts, however, place greater faith in the ability of the rules drafters to sort reliable from unreliable evidence than they do judges on a case-by-case -case basis. So we get, for example, Rule 602 
which will allow witnesses with personal knowledge to testify no matter how bad their memory is, no matter how poor their eyesight is. And we get Rule 801's general exclusion of hearsay no matter how reliable the hearsay statement is. Right? Now, of course, there are many exceptions to the hearsay rule, but again, we have to have faith that the rules drafters have done a good job predicting uh, reliability ex ante. If a, if a hearsay statement is made under certain circumstances, then we can deem that reliable. We have to have faith that the rules drafters have done a better job at predicting reliability than the judges could do on a case-by-case -case basis looking at all of the evidence and trying to make an assessment of whether this statement is under the circumstances reliable. Now, in my view, this faith in the insight and foresight of the rules drafters is misplaced. It's just not possible to predict which categories of evidence will generally be reliable or probative across the run of cases. Uh, long ago, I'm, some of you have heard the best evidence rule and you, you now understand it doesn't mean what it said, what, what it sounds like it is. Uh, the reason the best evidence rule is not really an evidence, a rule about the best evidence is that long ago we wisely gave up on this idea that we could come up with a hierarchy of better and worse evidence across cases. Right? Uh, yet the categorical rules seek to do that impossible task. That's effectively what the categorical rules of evidence that we have is trying to do, predict categories of reliable evidence across the runs, run of cases. Now, fortunately, some of the most important rules of evidence don't really function as categorical exclusions or inclusions of evidence despite their facial uh, resemblance to being categorical rules. Uh, rather, what the rules really do when you look at them in conjunction is they give courts considerable discretion to determine whether a particular piece of evidence is reliable and probative in the case at hand. So let's take character evidence, for instance, which some others have already mentioned. As Michael and Bobby discuss in the book, the best understanding of personality is that it is a good predictor of behavior in some situations, but not others. So for instance, when I am in public, I am very careful about what I say. <laughs> in private, my profane character takes over and there's no telling what I'll say. <laughs> this is what we call interactionism in psychology. We say behavior is a function of the interaction between personality traits and situational features. So if I'm on trial for libeling a member of a religious sect, like Catholicism, right, uh, and you want to put on evidence of my profane character to prove that I made a libelous comment, then Rule 404A is going to exclude that evidence uh, as banned character evidence. But if you can show that I've made similar comments under similar circumstances in the past, now you're probably going to get this evidence admitted under Rule 404B as other act evidence. So what we see in Rule 404 and also Rule 406, which is just another way to introduce particularly compelling evidence of past behavior, Rule 406 is the habit evidence rule. What we see with Rule 404 and 406 is that the rules require you to show more than just general relevance. 
you have to connect the evidence to the allegations of this particular case and explain why the evidence has particular probative value in the case at hand. You see this particularizing process explicitly adopted in a number of the rules, like Rule 609 on the admission of general felony convictions, uh, and Rule 412b2, the use of uh, evidence of prior sexual behavior in a civil case involving some kind of sexual misconduct charge. So in these rules, you, will see, you see the rules drafters basically conceding we need to make a particularized decision, but I think you can see that uh, in a number of the other rules and the way they work together. Uh, and I would submit that if, if Evidence rule, if the evidence rule's primary purpose is epistemic, that is, if, it, if the rules are aimed at improving the quality of evidence and the accuracy of a trial outcome, and many of the rules are not, do not have that goal, right? Many of the rules are trying to serve some other purpose. But for those rules whose purpose is epistemic, then we are, much, we are likely to do a much better job at sorting reliable from unreliable evidence on a case-by-case -case basis I would wager that the bias and error introduced by judicial discretion are much less costly than the bias and error associated with uh, flawed categorical rules of evidence. Um, but the American distrust of judicial discretion is very strong and causes opposition to a more forthright embrace of a particularized approach to evidential reliability, unfortunately. So for instance, you may or may not be aware that there's presently an attempt to broaden the scope of Rule 807, which is the residual hearsay exception. If you don't know that, I'm shocked that you don't, didn't know that. Um, but Rule, 40, Rule 807 is uh, a hearsay exception, sometimes called the wild card exception, that basically allows judges to make uh, admissibility decisions about hearsay on a case-by-case -case basis. And there's an effort that was started largely because of a, an opinion by just Judge Posner to broaden the scope of Rule 807 and move towards a more flexible approach to hearsay. The Rules Committee has just been getting an earful of opposition to this uh, because there's such a strong opposition to judicial discretion uh, and such an attachment to categorical rules and this assumption that they allow predictability uh, at a trial, and supposedly they do a good job of sorting uh, good evidence from bad evidence. So I suspect what we're going to see is that there will be no radical change to the hearsay rules, and we're going to continue to have to live with hearsay exceptions that obviously do not separate reliable hearsay from unreliable hearsay. And we're going to just have to hope that judges continue to discreetly exercise their discretion by putting statements into categories they clearly don't fit so that they can, they can admit um, what they think of as reliable hearsay that clearly doesn't fit one of the categorical uh, exceptions. So I guess I would add to, to um, Kim's point about the, whatever it was you said, about the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the dehumanizing, I don't know what it was, some philosophy. <laughs> what, is the, what is the dehumanizing effect on judges of having to live with categorical rules? I, I'm just kidding. I know what you said. The, the insincerity that comes to, from 
from the judges having to live with what are obviously bad rules as well and cause them to basically act to get around these rules. And the question I would have for Bobby uh, and maybe Fred, since Fred's one of the few people who's actually tried to defend the categorical rules of evidence, uh, is, is, is this, is the fear of judicial discretion warranted? And if it is, do the current rules of evidence really do a good job constraining intentional and unintentional judicial bias? My guess is the answer to both of those questions is no, but maybe you'll tell us. And now we should give an opportunity for rebuttal uh, to our uh, honored author. Oh my God. Um, as my sister would say, my brain is full. Um, <laughs> first, just let me start out by saying uh, thank you very much for you guys for reading the book and um, appearing here. And thank you to the law school and Risa for doing this sort of event. I think it's fabulous. And I hope my psycho colleagues who are here, those would be the psychologists, the psychos. Um, <laughs> I think we should do it in the psych department as well. I think this sort of treatment of a book is, is just a wonderful sort of thing. Um, I also want to mention, about 10 years ago, I taught a class that had 10 psychology students and, in it and 10 graduate, law, graduate psychology students in it and 10 law school students in it. And it's still to this day the favorite, my favorite course to ever have taught. But it was like speaking two languages at the same time. You would just say one word. And it wasn't even sometimes that they wouldn't know what the, uh, what the word meant. It's just that they meant two different, entirely different sorts of things, evidence and proof and psychology and all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, this, it, but it was so rewarding to get them to work together on, on an amicus brief, for example. And I thought this, this interdisciplinary stuff is really hard, but I would really love to do more of it. And then a few years ago, when I um, left the psychology department, a bunch of people asked me, what, you're not going to do research anymore? And I'm sure all the law faculty in the room is kind of annoyed by that. What do you mean? You think we don't do research? Um, but what they meant was empirical research. Um, but what I love doing here about in law is, you know, empirical research is, is wonderful. And there's nothing in, well, there are few things in the world better than good data. Um, <laughs> but, but it's so slow. It's such a slow process. And out there in the world of psychology, there's so much research that has already been done that is applicable to things in law, like evidence, and like so many of the other books that are coming out of the series. So there's a book on torts, the psychology of tort law that's already out. There's going to be one on family law, even one on property that just hasn't been incorporated into the law stuff yet that it's just been such a really interesting and fun undertaking. So gee, Ed, thank you for channeling that to me. Obviously, uh, I picked it up. And of course, it was Michael Sachs who, who dragged me onto this project in the first place. Um, that said, okay, I think you guys all brought up such interesting things and fabulous ideas for the next book. Uh, <laughs> I, um, uh, to, all of you have touched on the issue of how good trial lawyers, nobody said it quite this way, but really are good psychologists. Good trial lawyers really get 
what it is that people are going to buy and understand. And really, from a huge choice of evidence, figure out what to present and how to present it in order to be the most persuasive. The question, of course, is they, are they necessarily ethical psychologists? <laughs> and one thing you know, that, that Kim brought up was um, you feel bad about t teaching your students, well, the best way to get this in because you really want to use it. I'm not convinced that all, every time you have to be so evil to believe that, oh, this is bad evidence. Not, not bad, this is illegal evidence that I want to get in and be persuasive. Because you might actually believe, in fact, that it's fine evidence and it would be um, persuasive. It's interesting that so many of you um, got mentioned this sort of promise we made at the beginning of the book, and yes, we didn't follow through on it, which was really talking about how the rules were meant to constrain lawyers rather than to oh, deal with the poor, sad infirmities of stupid jurors. Um, <laughs> two things about that. One is that from a psychology point of view, I think our view about competency of jurors has taken this sort of uh, this sort of V-shaped thing that, in fact, mirrors what the judgment decision-making research about anybody ha has shown in the in the last or the attitude toward the data over the last I don't know 50 years or so. So it used to be oh we all thought people were re well reasonable man there was the reasonable man theory and you know the fact that that was man you know 50 years ago was. Uh, significant that it was called that, but humans are great intuitive statisticians, humans are great intuitive scientists. Okay, fine. So then the 70s, 80s, and 90s come along, and Kahneman and Tversky, and then a boat full of other people start showing all these heuristics and biases, and how we deviate from rationality, and you know we're going to use information for things it shouldn't be used for, and stuff like that. And at the same time, a lot of these things were shown that, that jurors um, show these same characteristics. Sometimes even judges show these same characteristics. Thank you to your judge who said this. And now it's sort of coming back again. You know, we can use these little tricks and traps to show that people aren't, don't do the right thing all of the time. But in fact, people do the right thing most of the time, uh, she said not thinking about false facts and alt facts and all that, but, um, you know, and, and that comes along with the, this new look at jurors, you know, the argument that it's really the evidence stupid, you know, that evidence is really the thing that jurors base their decisions on, and these other things that we study in psychology are a lot about the edges. It, it has to be if the case is close, then these things are going to matter. But if the case isn't close, jurors are going to get it right. People are going to get it right. Now, the other thing about this look about what's restraining lawyers or, and, and leaving that concept, you know, you know, this was, I'm going to blame everything bad in the book on the first author, Michael. No, this, <laughs> this, this was, in fact, something I hadn't really thought about, that the rules were that this historical approach now says that a lot of the rules were invented um, in order to constrain lawyers. Um, and he was really pushing for that interpretation more in the book. And I thought, 
Well, maybe that was the justification for a lot of the early on stuff, and certainly some procedural aspects. You know, the lawyers, things like, um, well, back in the day everybody knew everybody, but these days uh, being dismissed for cause, if you're, if you're buddies with the lawyer, or the lawyer not being able to promise the jury to be best friends with them and do things, nice things for them, or even having jurors make a commitment beforehand about you know, what they believe and how they're going to vote. But, um, and, and some other of the things, you know, about not putting on perjured testimony and things like that. But I, I think it has to be the case that you know, these rules weren't all developed at one time. And as you came through the years of trials and uh, different kinds of trials, and people wanting to put on different kind of testimony and the presence of jurors, I think it has to be that the presence of jurors was a big effect on the development of a lot of the rules, if not all of the rules. And so I wasn't as taken by this whole, we need, it, it's all done to constrain the lawyer approach as Michael was. But, you know, there's some historical record there. I just don't know in detail what it is. I think one interesting thing about this too is that you know we all it, it was so fun to hear everybody's approach to the book. So you know what is what is evidence law? And you guys could take evidence law from eight different people, and I think you could hear eight different approaches. You could hear an approach that's more about logic and probabilities and how to add evidence together, more about philosophy and about just how we create knowledge and understanding. You can hear about game theory, in a sense, about who's doing what. What, what. what would you do? How would you counter this tactic if another lawyer chose this tactic? How does that work? Um, something that none of us mentioned was you could hear it about policy, about what you know, the rules are really trying to get us to the right policy decisions, maybe. But you know, I think the rules are rich in psychology. I'm glad everybody here agrees to some extent. Um, but to me, the, the rules are really about what I call metacognition and mental contamination. Metacognition being about understanding what other people will understand. Trying to guess what other people will understand if somebody says something. And then mental contamination is the, oh no, we don't want them to hear something that they shouldn't be hearing because we know you can't unhear it. You can't get it out of the story. And this goes to, you know, to add your point about narrative, which I, I think is a wonderful uh, point. You know, and there is a book in there, or at least I'm never writing a book again, but an article in there. Um, and you, know, you mentioned this point about um, this rule. You know, we tell jurors at the beginning, don't come to any decisions. Just keep everything in your head. It doesn't work like that. People don't think like that. Even if they try to think like that, you can't think like that. And if you know, if we don't, if there's no um, opening statement, you know, in a way that's kind of a nice idea. But people remember stuff better when you ha they can hang it onto a story. And so we have this competing tension between them being able to hang it onto a story but also being able to keep questioning things down the line. There was a recent, well, didn't we, we talked about the, the, the Sherry Diamond studies. So in, in Arizona, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, you know, 
Federal, in federal courts, nobody can listen in on the jury. But in state courts, they're allowed to do it. So a bunch of researchers got permission from the state courts in Arizona, only if the lawyers agree to it, only if the litigants agree to it, only in civil cases, but to, to tape jurors as they go through deliberation, and also to use some different tactics in the uh, jury, um, the whole ju jury process. So in some cases, the jurors were allowed to submit questions to the judges, and then those, judge those questions could be asked to the jury. Turns out, jurors actually have a lot of interesting questions to ask as the case goes on. Yes, thank you. Anne has great videos about that. Um, and in another version, uh, jurors were allowed to talk to each other during the case. So this whole thing about they're not supposed to think about it or come to a conclusion, they're also not supposed to talk to each other during the process of the case. Great if it's a one-day case, but what if it's a three-day case or a five-day case or a six-month case? They're really not allowed to talk to each other. Well, it turns out in this, you got people to come together and talk to each other. Only if they were all in the room at the same time could they talk to each other. And this gets some jurors raising questions that other jurors have to deal with along the way. And maybe that at least would ameliorate some of that, as long as you have one questioning, commercially juror, like, you know, somebody like Greg on the jury, who would really, who would really question everything everybody else says, rather than, you know, everybody coming to a conclusion. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I really think this is about metacognition and mental contamination, and, and, um, you know, to, to Greg's point, I'm major point, I'm, I'm actually surprised that we only use the word discretion six times. Did you type in discretion with all the stars and asterisks? Yeah. <laughs> um, because at least I, I remember, you know, I was the lead author on this section called Balancing Tests or Balancing Acts or something like that, that talked about not only um, 403, the more prejudicial than probative, um, rule, but also some of the other balancing tests in, in the 600 rules, and um, thinking about how that was such a point for discretion, and how, again, this, this metacognitive thing is, should it be rulemakers who are deciding for all cases for all time, or judges who are there um, at, for this particular case having discretion, but I think I actually wrote that judges on this particular case, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what other people will know, especially when you know more than they do. Right? So it's hard to explain to people things that you know so well that we're just rattling off, oh, 403, 608, 609, and you guys are like, huh? Um, but we have to remember that who we're talking to. So the same thing with jury, juries. Judges have to realize that what they know or what they've seen before in a gazillion cases isn't so much what the ju jurors are necessarily seeing in this one case that they're sitting on. And uh, so it may be hard for the judges to judge what the jurors know. I have a million other pages of notes, but my brain is full. <laughs> so back to okay, you. so um, my in the middle of a school day with classes coming up, including mine and including some of yours, um, 
I think for people who have questions, we'll all hang around a little bit and you can ask them. Uh, but given the time and given classes, what I'd like to do is just uh, end the formal proceedings with three thanks. Um, one, uh, actually four. Uh, one, to echo what Bobby was saying, thanks to the school about um, doing all of these things. Risa is here so you can accept the thanks on behalf of the school uh, for doing events like this. Um, secondly, thanks to all four of our speakers for uh, not only the two who have traveled considerable distances to come here, uh, but all four of them for essentially taking time out for, from their own work to comment on someone else's, uh, a remarkably generous act. Uh, I also, um, we, all t we tend to show up for these events Lunch is here, the, speak, uh, the signs are here, the microphones work, the chairs are set up, and everything else. This is not magic. This is not produced by the hundred nuns. Uh, this is produced by um, a remarkably um, talented and committed um, uh, cadre of administrators. Uh, for this particular event, most significantly, Terry Johnson, who is here. She has made the event happen, uh, so thank you. Um, and then I will just finish by thanking um, Bobby for um, writing such a wonderful book. Maybe I should also uh, thank her for finishing it. Uh, the, uh, uh, and in that vein, uh, there are certainly parts of the book, um, at least some of the more sophisticated um, psychological parts that I may not understand completely. And in that respect, um, I may not know what all of the book means, but I know what it meant. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you all for coming.